This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Behind the Markets on Business Radio. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global CIO at WisdomTree. My co-host is Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for the Long Run, and the sixth edition is out wherever books are sold. I'm a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior economist to WisdomTree. Discussion is not tied to the offer or sale of any investment products. And the views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Trees Affiliates. We have a fascinating show. We have Nir Kazar, who's the founder of Unison Advisors, also a Bloomberg columnist. Uh, I know Nir has been wanting to talk to the professor, and we're going to get some interaction with them, hopefully, to start the show. But, Professor, as we're gearing up, sort of a quiet week, uh, big, big week next week. How are you looking forward to inflation, the Fed, and anything else you're seeing going on this week? Well, first of all, I mean, it's always a quiet week data-wise. You know, uh, let me just comment. In fact, that yesterday the S&P entered into a a bull phase, so to speak. It's up more than 20% from its high. Everyone says we are now in a bull market. Now, that sounds to the average person it's going up. (laughs) Um, And indeed, once you get to that 20%, um, the, the following year has been above average, but I, I, it's very important to remind people that in two of the last three bear markets, um, um, before the one that we went through yesterday, uh, uh, in the great financial crisis, the market rallied 20% off the low, uh, in, in November, 2008, um, uh, and then plunged to new, uh, lows. Uh, in March of 2009, it was it didn't it, it was not not a good idea to go in if you're a timer. Um, similarly, after the dot com bust, we rallied about 25 percent off the lows and then went to a new low right after that. So it's no guarantee. Now, with that said, I'm not predicting we're going to new lows. In fact, you know, my feeling is as the October low uh, will hold. Um, but I am not necessarily saying that this is the start of a gangbusters uh, return going forward. Now, let's talk about next week. Everyone thinks, oh, the most, yeah, the most important thing of next week, Tuesday, the CPI, Wednesday, the actual announcement and dot plot from the FOMC. Honestly, what interests me the most next week is going to be Thursday's initial jobless claims. And that is because we saw an extraordinary jump in jobless claims last week. Now, a little, little history here. We do recall just a few weeks before we saw a jump and all that was then uh, <laughs> whisked away by the uh, claim, oh my goodness, that was bad data from the state of uh, Massachusetts and when, uh, it was, there was no jump. Well, this is not bad data. Uh, <laughs> uh, this is actually a jump. Now, we have to have two things in mind. Um, the, uh, weekly claims are volatile. And this is around uh, Memorial Day weekend, which makes it even more volatile. Uh, weekend seasonal adjustments are difficult. So I'm not going to put over um, emphasis on this, but I'm saying that if we don't go back down on jobless claims on Thursday, that could very well signal the downturn that everyone's been waiting for, but no one is, we have not seen yet. Uh, so uh, that's going to be really important. As far as what's going on next week, I think the CPI is going to be relatively tame within one-tenth of expectations. We did have a drop in oil prices, so it's going to be looking better than the core. Um, on Wednesday, I do expect a hold. Um, however, I expect a hawkish dot plot, and I expect um, uh, uh Chairman Powell to bend over backwards saying this does not mean we're not raising it again because he's got to appease the hawks for a hold because a lot of ones want another quarter point to next week and um, he's going to have to use that language. This is not a permanent stop. Now, the truth of the matter is 
whatever the DAP plot is, and whatever he tries to imply that maybe we'll go another 25 basis points in, in June, in, excuse me, in July. And by the way, if you look at the futures market, they are fully pricing in a 25 basis point increase in July. So uh, they do think so. Um, but I'm not so sure. Uh, I would bet, I would tend to bet against it, you know, if I was a speculator, probably take a, yeah, <laughs> uh, a, uh, a short position there in the Fed funds futures, which is uh, uh, actually, but uh, um, I don't, I think this might be the very last, last one because of the trends we see and the fact that we're entering, we already are in a political season, my goodness. Even though it's 17 months to the election, it's only what you know, you know, half year basically until primary season, um, and um, uh, there's going to be a lot of political pressure if we begin to see faltering in that employment. I don't expect a big recession. I don't. Uh, I think. Uh, listen, I think the market's actually positioned for this. How? We have NASDAQ selling for 30 times earnings. We have S&P selling for 20 times earnings. This is this year. And we have small and mid-cap selling for 14 and 15 times earnings. I mean, uh, we have value stocks also being very discounted. So really, they're almost anticipating a recession. Not a terrible recession, but basically a recession. So we might not see really much of a decline in the stock market, even as the labor market deteriorates, but that labor market deteriorating has a lot of political implications and therefore a lot of pressure on the Fed, which does have a dual mandate. Let us remind ourselves, it must watch employment as well as inflation. Is it worth to squeeze another one or two percentage points out of inflation at the cost of, you know, sending two or three million workers out of work? I don't think so. Um, but that's obviously uh, judgments that uh, the Federal Reserve um, will have to make. Neer, I know you have a bunch of questions. Maybe I'll let you ask uh, the, the first set of questions here. Okay, sounds good. Um, hi, Professor Siegel. Um, I wanted to ask you, you know, it seems to me that um, a lot of the criticism about the Fed is about the fact that they're late. They were late to recognize inflation. They're late to recognize that the uh, economy is weakening, et cetera. And it seems to me that part of the problem that they have inherently is that there's a lag in economic data of several months at least. And I'm wondering whether you think they ought to be looking at different data than they're looking at and perhaps more recent data than they're looking at. And if so, what, what should they look at? Hey, so I've been making this point for a year and a half. The, the housing data is terrible that the Fed is getting from the BOS. It's based on a long distributed lag of past changes. Um, uh, we at Wisdom Tree and Jeremy, uh, Jeremy Sh uh, Schwartz and I have been constructing a current index based on case shower, apartment list, Willow, rental prices, and others. It shows a very different pattern, a much more higher rate of inflation in the earlier years, and now a much lower rate of inflation. In fact, our latest uh, computation, um, Jeremy, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it gives core year-over-year -year inflation down to 2.8%, which is, you know, within spitting distance of uh, the Fed's goal. Yes, they, it, it, it is shameful that the Fed has been using outdated data, uh, and I think, in fact, had they been using current data, they wouldn't have made the mistake of, of waiting so long because infl core inflation actually hit 12 or 13% in 2021, and they wouldn't be calling that transient. So that has been a major failure of the Fed uh, uh, in terms of not seeing uh, those um, inflationary trends. Are there other examples? You mentioned housing. Is there more current data that they could use around food? Well, you know, their core PC excludes food and energy. Um, but whatever else is in there, are there are there other examples of more current data that, that they could look at? Well, I haven't looked at that. I mean, that's that's the big, big thing by far dominant. As you know, housing is, you know, 40, 41 percent of the core. So that that mm -hmm. is huge and very late. I, I think everything else is relatively minor. Uh, you know, they could be looking, you know, there are car prices and used car prices from from Edmunds mm -hmm. and other services that are a little bit more. But that's that's small potatoes compared to the huge mistake that they are making on, on judging uh, the housing inflation. 
Right, that makes sense. And while we're on the subject of inflation measures, one of the things that we talked about last time we talked on this program is about the, the need for the Fed to get a, a, um, a positive real Fed funds rate. Um, and one of the things that's, that, I, that I find confusing, and I think a lot of people find confusing, is what is the hurdle? In other words, you know, they, as we talked about, they like to look at core PCE. But when we're talking about getting the Fed funds rate to be, uh, you know, above the rate of inflation, which right now I think the target is, what, five to five and a quarter, um, are we talking about higher than core PCE? Are we talking about higher than CPI? What's the right hurdle for them? Well, uh-huh. um it's higher and right now i mean you know uh i mean forward looking i mean i said year over year core inflation properly measured only two nine so being at five one we're really in positive position right now um now much less if you use their lag data because you got core year over year four five so you got not not as much uh, but if you look, you don't forget that's still year over year you got to do forward looking um, and yeah, I think there's still going to be a little bit of service inflation, a little bit of residual inflation. Inflation, for instance, that's in the medical services, very slow to move through. Uh, there's some financing charge inflation due to the Fed itself raising interest rates, um, which is you know kind of crazy, causing causing their own inflation by fighting inflation. Um, but uh, a lot of these, uh, you know, uh, you know, when you look at forward-looking commodity prices, forward-looking core prices, service prices are are going up, but wage wages are moderating don't forget wages have to rise to equilibrate supply and demand i've been a big critic of the fed trying to push down wages i think that's a wrong thing to do um that's not not how you solve the inflationary problem um uh so uh, you know uh there you know whether you use core or not core at this particular point we're 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 at a fed real fed funds rate in my opinion of three to four percent minimum and maybe even a little higher, which I think is way above equilibrium. Um, and we've inverted the, the term structure, which, as you know, has been a infallible indicator of recession in the last 60 years. Does not mean it won't fail now, but, you know, we have 60 years of history. Right, that is true. I have one. Uh, I have one last one for you. I could go yeah. on all day, Professor Siegel, but I know I know you only have so much time. I'm curious. There's a lot of conversation about the inflation target, um, and you know they the Fed has come out publicly and you know said that two percent is their target. I'm curious what your view is of how important a target is, and um, and to the extent that it is important for the Fed to have one and to communicate it publicly, um, whether two percent is the right number or what what it should be. Yeah, good questions. First of all, I think it is good to have a target. And I, by the way, I also think it is there is good theoretical reasons why they should raise that target to, say, 3%. However, they cannot do that now. Politically impossible. While you're fighting inflation, it sounds like you're just giving up on, you know, your your goal. But, um, uh, you know, after they get over most of the inflation and it ceases to become a big issue, uh, they're going to have discussions about reasons to raise it. And the reason to raise it is that real rates have been going down over time um, and uh, equilibrium Fed funds rates are going down and they think it's two to two and a half percent. Well, when they started dot plotting 15 years ago, it was four and a half percent. So uh, they have much less room to lower it. Um, when, uh, you know, it's two to two and a half percent, if we have a, a bad shock, uh, then when it was four and four and a half percent, if they raise the rate of inflation, you then raise the Fed funds rate by about one percentage points to take it. You got more room to operate. However, again, this discussion uh, can will not be voiced during this inflation fight. Professor, Professor- I can't help myself. Do you think they will get to two percent? I think they're going to get close. Um, it depends on how bad the recession is. If if they're if the recession really starts going up, the political pressure is going to be really huge. Um, uh, not to go all the way because I mean at that point, uh, you know, an extra quarter percent or half percent on inflation compared to a million people out of work just and you know uh, the Democratic Party uh, <laughs> is going to you know yell and scream. They've got they're in precarious position as we know. Biden is you know, I don't, in a big fight here uh, for re-election, um, he can't afford a recession. Um, right. And, uh, <laughs> you know, my feeling is the pressure will be to ease off when you get close. 
And on our measure, yeah. Professor, Thank they're you. gonna not, they're gonna get well below two percent. Is our prediction this summer? They should get yeah. close to zero. Uh, well, Professor Seal, thanks for staying with us, and Nir, thanks for helping ask some questions. Have a great weekend, Professor. Yeah, we'll talk about the Fed next week. All right, so Nir, we're gonna continue on. We're talking with Nir Kazar, who's founder of Unison Advisors, a columnist for Bloomberg. So it's great to get uh, another. You say writer and opinion opinion commentator to get the, to engage with the professor. I, I, I enjoy that near. Um, what what's your take on all that you were asking? Thank how let, let's let's get your view on everything that you were you're asking some questions on. Ah, the tables have turned. You know, I um I have been publicly a defender of the Fed, and I have uh, received a lot of hate mail for it. Um, you know, I find a lot of the criticism, um, I, I have to say, I, you know, I have followed Professor Siegel's uh, comments closely, his public comments closely, and I think they're all well taken, and I tend to agree with the vast majority of them. Um, the one thing, and this is not about his criticism, but about the criticism of the Fed in general, is that I'm not, I'm not sure that it's fair to ask them to be able to predict how things are going to go in the future with as much precision as people want. As far as I can tell, we just don't have any reliable model. And I know there's some disagreement about this, but I just don't see us having any reliable models about how to anticipate future inflation, um, about how to anticipate the timing or even extent of recessions, um, even though I, I realize that recessions are not uh, explicitly part of their mandate, obviously. Um, so it seems to me that, you know, based on the lag data that they have, um, they made the best decisions they could make at the time, and I have and I applaud them for for being very serious in their fight against inflation. I you know I was on a podcast about a year ago. A year ago, I was asked about you know how high I thought the Fed was going to go, and I said at the time that I I thought they were serious as a heart attack about this inflation fight, and that they were going to do everything they had to do, no matter what the consequences were to get inflation down, because I think they were, you know, they were fighting the demons of the 1970s, and I think appropriately so. Mostly, you know, you don't want it to get out of hand. Um, now, there's an argument, obviously, about whether we're there, whether they can, whether, you know, the foot can, can, can be off the proverbial, you know, pedal. Um, but, but I think so far what they've done is, is, I think they've done a pretty good job. Um, the, um, I, I agree with Professor Siegel. I think the inflation target, uh, I think is helpful in terms of guidance. I do agree that they are going to get very close to 2%, if not lower. I think they're very serious about that. Um, and, um, in terms of the inflation measure, you know, I don't know. I keep going back and forth about that. I mean, I think, um, I, I think core PCE does make sense because obviously there's a lot of volatility in energy and food prices. On the other hand, you know, if we're not talking about inflation and energy and food prices, which are the two things arguably people need more than anything else, excluding housing, of course, um, then, you know, what are we talking about? You know, it doesn't, doesn't help anyone at all if food and energy prices are going through the roof and you can look at your inflation measure and it looks good, you know. So I'm not sure about that one. Yeah. I think the thing that upset Siegel the most was some of the uh, – there's, there's a number of them, but the, what Powell's comments that the money supply has no relation to inflation. You have, okay, for 30 years, there's these small changes. Of course, you're not going to see a relationship between very nuanced changes and no real inflation. But when you have an explosion, money supply 40%, you know, he was calling early, early on, right after the pandemic, that there would be a lot of inflation to come from that. And so that, that's been one of his big frustrations. But let's go to the other hot topic of the day. You wrote a piece on this just recently. We're going to, I'm sure, have a number of conversations on the show over the coming weeks about AI's impact on the economy. And, and the professor is putting his together, his thoughts on what the implications are for inflation, for economic growth. What's Given AI is the key buzzword, all the rage, what's your take on AI, the economy, uh, and then we can talk about markets, but just on the economy to start. Well, I'm of two minds. If, if it on the intersection of AI and the economy, I'm sort of, of of two minds. I mean, I think the technology is real, no question in my mind. Um, it's, I think, a boon for productivity. Um, so in general, it's going to be a net positive if we're just focused on economic growth. Where I'm not not so sure is the timing of this. I'm, I, uh, well, a couple things. One is the timing. I think it's possible that we, we believe AI is closer uh, to the doorstep than it actually is. Um, and two, I, we might be giving AI more, too much credit in terms of what it can do. 
So I'm skeptical around the timing and I'm skeptical around the extent to which it's going to be helpful. There's no doubt that it's going to be helpful. But I think people in their minds view AI right now as transformative. And I'm not so sure it's going to be. And I, I often think about, you know, previous waves of technology. And even with the benefit of hindsight, I think we can disagree about to what extent the Internet was transformative. You know, the smartphone was transformative. There's no question that, uh, that it kicked up productivity. And there's no question that uh, it advanced technology in meaningful ways. But did it change our lives in fundamental ways? I'm not, I'm not sure. And, and I think having at least that much skepticism when it comes to AI is called for. Yeah, this is, uh, we had Bob Gordon on, on the show and sort of this, uh, he, he talks about all the great inventions happened like a hundred years ago. And, you know, the, the, there's always this question, if they have all this innovation and is anything showing up in the productivity today? Because, and we haven't really seen productivity go up. If anything, you've, you've got very disappointing productivity numbers. You've been hiring all these people, but real GDP has been very sluggish. Last year was like a record disappointing productivity numbers. Is is your sense that these kind of expectations similar for the short term here? Well, it's a very interesting point because this is where productivity is is uh, is tricky because we don't know what would have happened without this technology, right? So we can look at the productivity over the last, say, 30 years, and we can see that it's been disappointing in the sense that it hasn't met what we thought it was going to be um, from from the wave of technology that we've had over the last three decades. But it's quite possible um, that, you know, our, our, our productivity would have been even weaker if we didn't have this um this uh, this technology, well, and and by this technology, I mean you know the last couple of decades. I mean uh, you know the internet, smartphones, etc. Um, and I think that's sort of a, a cautionary positioning for AI. I mean, I think it's entirely possible that AI will both contribute to greater productivity, and that also it will not contribute nearly to the degree that we think it might. Um, but we'll see. We'll see. I think that's very difficult to know. Have you started using it at all for yourself or do you see it coming up in, in asset management at all? You know, I, uh, I have a, uh, I have a hardwired bias against things like ChatGPT because I'm a, I'm an opinion columnist and I, I don't want to think that, uh, that AI can write better than a human being can, but I'm sure, I'm sure one day it will and it probably can write better than I can today. So I have started to mess around with it. You know, I'm not entirely, I wouldn't say I'm entirely impressed. Um, uh, as things stand, but I'm also mindful that we are at the very, very beginning of this, and I, I have, I have a lot of confidence that it won't be long before we are all impressed by what AI can do. You know, I did, I, I wrote a piece specifically about AI and money management, um, and did a podcast about that at Bloomberg. And you know, my view of um, of AI uh, in terms of money management is that I think, you know, I. I a lot of people look at AI and say, won't AI be wonderful? It'll give us insights about markets that, uh, that we don't currently have. It'll be a better money manager than human beings will. And implicitly in that view is that ultimately AI can make more money in the markets than a human being can. And, and while I don't doubt AI's superior ability, I, I, think there, I think people are drawing the exact opposite conclusion about what the impact is going to be, which is, you know, as, as money managers have gotten better over the decades, markets have become more efficient and therefore harder to beat. In other words, there's an inverse relationship between the skill of the market participants and the ability to make money in the market. And to the extent that AI is going to come along and is going to be more skillful than anything we've had before, which I don't doubt, to me, all that means is it's going to be even more difficult to make money in the market, not less. So all of that might be for the good. I mean, one of the things... As you know, Jeremy, I'm a, I'm a big fan of index investing, whether that's, you know, um, factor-based investing, you know, smart indexes, or whether it's market cap, you know, broad market tracking indexes, whatever it is. Um, I just think it makes sense to automate that stuff. And, um, and you can see that as time has gone on um, and more of that has penetrated the markets, you know, the markets have, have become better behaved and better functioning. And I suspect we're going to get the same thing out of AI. 
Well, yeah. Well, in terms of how it's impacting the markets, there's obviously you could use it to help try to pick some better stocks or, or bonds or whatever you plan to do with it. But it's also driving this huge concentration to kick off the year. You know, you had this growth sell off last year, and, and some people say it was rates driven and sort of the higher duration stocks, the ones with the cash flows the furthest out, were the ones most hit because rates dramatically repriced. Uh, and then to start this year, basically, now we've got this higher for longer call by many at the Fed. And and what you see is the returns of the the mega cap tech dominating everything. And uh, what do you think is is how much? I guess I had two part question here. How much of the narrative of last year was all about interest rate repricing and valuations? And now this year, what do you see? Uh, it's sort of the AI AI boom impacting big tech. What? How, how do you diagnose what's happening in the markets last year and this year? Well, you know, I have to acknowledge first that uh, it's very difficult to know in real time exactly what's happening. But if, if you, if I had to take my best guess, I would say the thing with AI is, you know, it requires um, a lot of resources and a lot of data. And it happens that, you know, the big tech companies in the U.S. that have dominated markets in recent years have all the resources and all the data. And so you would think, um, if you just had to bet, you would think that they would have an edge in the AI race, and there's a lot of talk about that. And to the extent that people are excited about AI, it makes sense to me that um, that the giants, the tech giants, would lead the market. You know, the Microsofts, the Apples, you know, the Googles of the world would lead the market, and that's what we've seen so far this year. I mean, if you if you pull out the um, the the performance of the top performing stocks this year, you know, you get something very anemic from the S&P 500. Um, so, you know, my guess is that's what's going on there. My, my view about last year was really about readjusting the market for um, not only a higher interest rate environment, but, but specifically the impact of higher interest rates on the broader economy. I think a lot of people look at the market today and say to themselves, I don't understand why stocks are going up if everyone agrees that we're going to have a recession um, even if you grant that we're going to have a recession, which obviously is not not necessarily um, in the books, uh, you know you would expect the market to anticipate that by a year and eighteen months beforehand. And so, I, my best read of what happened last year was the market repositioning for a weaker economy, and now it's looking ahead to what happens after a recession if we get a recession in a you know in a sort of interest rate environment that looks more quote unquote normal. In other words more in line with the historical average and, and up from, you know, zero interest rates. It is a question is what is normal now for rates, given that we've had like a 15 year stretch that's been very abnormal. Like what is the new, the new normal? Yeah, that's a, that's a very good and hard question. <laughs> I mean, I, my view is that uh, I, I tend to think, and you, you probably see that a lot in my writing. I'm a big fan of historical data. I, I certainly don't think, it's dispositive. I mean, it certainly is not going to tell us everything about the future, but I think it's the best that we have. Um, I think it's better than not looking at the data and trying to guess off the cuff. And I think if you look at you know, long-term interest rate data, depending on what you're looking at, you know, you're looking at averages of somewhere between 4 to 6%, again, depending on what rate you're keying off of. Um, and so, you know, a Fed funds rate of 5% and building up from there feels about right to me if, if you ask me what normal is. Um, having said that, you know, a lot of it is going to depend on where inflation goes, obviously. I mean, we can't rule out a um, an environment where, you know, inflation is just not not absurdly high, like the 1970s and, 19, and early 1980s, but just higher than anybody wants. In which case, I could I could see interest rates hanging around longer than we uh, than we than we think uh, are warranted. I could also make the opposite argument. I mean, it's possible that the inflation that uh, the Fed succeeds gets inflation back down to around two percent. All of a sudden, the Fed funds rate of two and a half to three to three percent works just fine. You build out a normal yield curve from there, and you have you know rates that are roughly where they are today, but in a healthy yield curve. Um, so we'll see. But but I think we were so far away from what I think is normal and probably healthy. Although I think absolutely the Fed was right to stimulate the way it did after the financial crisis and again during the pandemic. I, I think personally it would have been lunacy. To, um, to to not intervene in the way that they did. Um, but I think we can also acknowledge at the same time, we can have these two thoughts simultaneously, that, you know, that there is there are negative externalities to holding interest rates at zero for an extended period of time. Um, and we've seen them, and now it's just time to take our medicine. 
you know, it's, it's on, on these topics that we've been talking about so far, inflation, uh, AI, productivity. I was at a conference hosted by by FTSE Russell, the LSEG group down in, in Jacksonville this week. And there was a lot of great speakers. Bob Arnott from Research Affiliates was there. He gave his views on some of this value rotation and inflation, you know, and, and he gave a pretty strong statement saying the next 10 years inflation was going to be 2.9% instead of the 22 in tips markets and was saying, hey, it should be long tips because the break-evens, uh, that in his view, 10-year inflation would be much higher than what's factored into tips. Uh, we, we talked a lot about this AI trend as well. But you know, Siegel's been on this case that that the real rate is heading much lower um, in some ways. And, and you know, you're getting the, the – I've seen the, the tips yields. I don't have the exact quote right in front of me, but you were getting – 170 plus on some of the longer duration tips you know this is the average if you go back since they were issued it's it's, it's actually quite around that to your point on using averages when 97 the tips were issued i want to say they're around one and a half percent was the average you got down to negative uh, but now you're getting a little bit above average is, is it would you be a buyer of tips today on these rates uh what's going on well you know it's uh the thing with tips is the math is difficult to begin with and it's even more difficult when there's so much uncertainty about um, about the path of inflation and interest rates. And I would probably, if I own tips today, I would probably uh, hang on to them. But if I didn't own them, I would probably be disinclined to introduce them into a portfolio um, because I just think the visibility is so difficult at this moment. I'd probably wait and let things shake out. I acknowledge, though, in saying that, that, um, that at the end of the day, you know, tips are – an inflation hedge, and when do you want an inflation most? An inflation hedge most when inflation is a threat, which is now. You know, so there is. Um, there, it, it's funny to make that argument, but but I think you know, for I'm a I'm a big believer in um, when it comes to portfolio management in in sharpening your pencil and trying to do the math on expected returns, as difficult as it is, and as fraught as it is, but, because I think it's better than assuming that expected returns are static and that they're going to be roughly the same in your holding period across assets. But I would just say that in this moment, with all the uncertainty, the expected return forecast tips are are dicey. Would you agree with that, Jeremy? I'd be curious to hear your view about that. It's tricky because, you know, and I've, I brought this up with our investment team. You know, we have a, a model portfolio group that looks at models. And, you know, I, I say, hey, if Siegel says the 10 year tips or, you know, the longer duration tips should get you to maybe zero to 50 basis points at 1.6, you might say they're attractive. Uh, and you could agree that, hey, maybe the risk is are not right. You're going to have this higher inflation. Would you want that? And so, I, I, in some ways, I think the real rate is higher. I mean, it's not a. I mean, I think stocks will do better than 1.6. So if you say, "Hey, I'm going to buy 10-year tips for the next 10 years," 1.6 versus where's the S and P? Um, even just played out S and P with the more expensive tech stocks, you get a five percent earnings yield. You're going to get you're going to do better over 10 years in the S P than tips. But you know, w- whether tips versus other other options, um, you know, if if it really is a a issue, you know. That inflation is is much higher. You might have all rates go up, and then you still might do poorly. I mean, a lot of our fixed income team likes you get five percent in very short duration treasuries with the inverted yield curve. If inflation is high, you'll still get that five percent. You know, and so that's a that's the right. other way to think about it. Um, that perhaps the shortest duration treasuries are, are another effective way to, to do that, given that the Fed is adjusting and keeping rates high. And, and we, we've been talking about that that short duration treasury is another way to think about it. Yeah, no, I think that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, related in general, I mean, when you look at uh, if you if you have to choose right now between and I know treasuries are not credit, but to the extent you have to choose between, you know, term and credit right now, it just seems to me for sure would go the credit route. And if you're going to go, if you're not going to go the credit route, then, you know, why take the term risk? I mean, you know, long term, the, the credit premium is so much higher than the term risk. Um, just as a baseline matter. And in this moment with an inverted yield curve, it seems that seems to me that term makes a lot less risk, uh, a lot less uh, sense, unless you are speculating on where you think the future course of interest rates will go. However, having said that, I did write a piece, Jeremy, looking at, because I was curious myself, what happens three or five years out to total returns from intermediate bonds when they start in an inverted yield curve? In other words, when the short end of the curve is higher and your are and the and intermediate yields are already behind. What yeah. happens to total returns three and five years out? And what I discovered, to my surprise, 
was that the vast majority of the time, the total return is higher for the intermediates three or five years out, um, even when even when you're starting with an inverted yield curve. So there is that to consider. I mean, I think if you go too far out, it, it, it changes it changes the entire analysis, um, which is why I picked an intermediate uh, bonds, and also because you know a lot of people tend to own the broad market uh, bond market, and that tends to hug sort of intermediate duration. But I thought that was I was surprised by that. Well, it, it, because of what Siegel was just saying, that the inverted yield curve has been a like a hundred percent predictor of recession, and so rates go down after you know with a with the recession there. That's exactly right. So that's that that explains most of it, and the rest of it is explained by the fact that you know eventually the um, the yield curve uh, right sizes, and if you have uh, if you have no movement, even if you have no movement in interest rates, eventually you get paid more to be further out on the curve, and that more than compensates for whatever you got you got paid during the inversion which tends to not last as long as a normal as a normal yield curve yeah so it's very interesting let jeremy if, let me ask you something that i um i, I don't mean to to sort of uh, derail the conversation but i did want to ask you one of the things that professor siegel mentioned was that he thought if i heard him correctly that he thought that 30 times on technology i don't know if he was referring to the nasdaq but technology stocks was not expensive. In other words, um, is is um, is pricing that you would expect to uh, to reflect a recession? Um, I'm curious what you think of that. I because one of the things that I struggle with is how should we think about the valuation premium for technology relative to the broad market? How should we think about yeah. what's the right valuation for the Nasdaq versus the S and P? We have data, as you know, on the S and P that goes back a long way. And so to the extent that you like historical data, you can be reasonably certain. But obviously with the NASDAQ, we don't have as much data. This is this is a great question. And, and one of the things we do on a daily basis, I have this daily dashboard uh, on our strategies page. It's called, available for everybody. And I, and I show the S&P index with what I call an expanded tech sector, which is roughly about 40% of the S&P 500 today. So it's, it's not just the traditional tech, which is Microsoft and Apple, but what they used to call tech is Amazon and the internet tech, and then Meta and the communications tech. And that PE today, I show it's around forward PEs. So sort of looking one year out, 27 times earnings. And, you know, the average going back 30 years on that has been about 21 times. Now, you know, some people show these charts of the NASDAQ uh, and the tech sector outperforming at levels back to 2000. You know, I go back to February 2000 levels and you had, you know, those peak bubble days, you were in the 50s on that type of expanded tech definition. So it's in, in yes, there's an element of outperformance of these stocks. The stocks are not trading anywhere near February 2000 levels, or sort of half those levels. Now, these companies should grow, you know, they are growing more than average. The question of how much can they persistently grow above the S&P? You know, the ex-tech sector is only trading 16 times earnings, basically what the S&P used to trade at historically, but that's that ex-tech sector is right at its median. So it's not expensive at all. There's definitely segments of the market that are like 10 to 11 times earnings. Um, sort of the high dividend segment is, is, is right around there. But the, I, I'd say he, he, you know, he thinks 20 is fair for the market is, is generally because he thinks a, a 5% real return is probably fair. And so, you know, you should pay more for it. The question is how much more given their growth rates? Uh, there's not an exact number that I think he has in mind for that tech sector. We definitely would say tech is expensive uh, relative to everything else. I mean, 10 points more. The question is those growth rates, how much more are they, they warranted? I'll tell you, Professor Siegel has been, I wrote a column about this, as you know, several years ago. He, he has been absolutely right about about saying that 20 times is a reasonable valuation because, you know, if you took a more austere view of valuations over the last two or three decades, I mean, you really missed out on uh, on some big gains in U.S. stocks. Um, yeah, we, so he, we, he's been spot on on that. Near, we talked a, a lot about uh, sort of inflation, the economy. To start the show, uh, you're just talking about where the rates are, and you mentioned credit as one of the places. I I'm curious on your take on high yield bonds. Uh, my team has been saying it's sort of interesting. You look at the historical volatility of high yield bonds, uh, probably about half the volatility of stocks, uh, but you're getting yields approaching nine percent in some of these places. Are Are you thinking of high yields as a? How do you think of it as as a competitor to stocks today? 
Well, I think um, I think it's finally starting to get interesting, as you as you say, Jeremy, in terms of the uh, in terms of the absolute yield. Because you know, if you assume, if you just take the long term average and you say, okay, I'm going to get you know 10 percent um, from the S P 500, and I I you know I don't my suspicion is it won't be that over the next whatever period you want to measure five, seven, ten, however you like to measure your expected returns. My guess is it won't get that high. Um, which we can get into, but but yeah. um, but even if it does, you have to take very you have to take a nine percent yield from uh, from high yield very seriously. Now there are some obviously some tax considerations. I mean, you know, if you're if you're a, if you're a taxable investor and you're buying high yield, you know, a lot of what your a lot of your return is going to be you're going to have to pay taxes on today. Whereas you know with um, with stocks, you're going to get to defer a good portion of it in terms of capital gains. So that's that's something you have to think about. But if we set that aside for a minute. Um, I think um, you know it's going to be less volatile. I mean, let's let's say that um, you know annualized standard deviation. Let's say it's about 15 for stocks. Let's say it's closer to 10 or 11 for high yield um, equivalent um, equivalent expected return pre-tax. Um, that's pretty compelling. Having said that, I think the I think it's also useful to think about it, or maybe even more useful to think about it in terms of on a spread basis. Uh, because we're talking about at the end of the day fixed income, and so the question is, what is your opportunity cost? It's not necessarily stocks, although it is obviously in the portfolio. Um, but you know, it's also what can you do if you didn't take credit risk? Um, and it seems to me right now the the spreads are pretty attractive. You know, if you looked at them, they're roughly in line with the historical average. So I don't mean to suggest that they're you know at some sort of, sort of crisis or you know recession levels, but I mean, you know, there hasn't been a lot of, of, of credit premia to take advantage of um, in recent years. I would say, you know, with the exception of the pandemic, it's been pretty thin since the financial crisis. And so just getting the historical average, I think, is a feat in and of itself. And it's, it's worth a serious look. Yeah, no, we're, I, I'm, I'm, obviously people are worried of this recession that this is always on the horizon here, but, uh, and, and thinking that spreads are not at the depths of where they would go during a recession, but the absolute yield levels are, do seem to be quite interesting. So it's so good, good to hear your take on that. We, we've talked a little bit about just the market and, and AI driving stocks. Uh, we, we haven't really talked about some of the foreign markets where you think about where valuations are. You, as at Unison, you guys have brought a a very global approach to how you think about things. What do you think the opportunity is across the world? How do you think about foreign allocations today in terms of how you manage money? Is it more or less you think uh, worthy of going foreign than than typical today? I would say more, although. You know, we, um, you know, as you say, Jeremy, we uh, in general are fans of uh, global investing uh, and are probably more aggressive about our approach to taking a, a global footprint than a lot of places might be. Um, and, you know, that has been very painful for, you know, as you know, for much of the period since the financial crisis, because, you know, foreign markets have not given investors a lot. And meanwhile, you know, the, the U.S. stock market has taken off. And so the, the difference in the return, I mean, you know, depending on what indexes you're, you're looking at, I mean, can be somewhere like, you know, 12 or 13 percent a year since the financial crisis, which, uh, you know, it's devastating. And if, uh, you know, any, any, any one of your listeners will know from experience, you know, to the extent that they've had a globally diversified portfolio over the last 15 years, you know, they've just sort of watched, you know, shaking their head at the way the S P five hundred has taken off and their their portfolio is middled in the whatever, five, six, seven percent a year annualized. So it's been very painful. Having said that, I just don't see any reason to believe as a baseline matter that the return from US stocks should be any higher really than from other developed countries. I mean, you know, we can argue about is earnings growth more robust in the US and should that drive higher stock prices? Yes. On the other hand, the dividends are higher overseas, so that might net out. Um, and then, of course, you've got the valuation expansion and contraction. And, and, you know, it's very difficult to know in advance, you know, what valuations are going to do during your holding period. The, the net impact of that for me is that I generally assume that the returns are going to be the same long term in, in all the developed world. And I could make the argument, I think, very forcefully that the return is going to be even higher in the emerging uh, countries because, you know, you have higher rates of growth there and you generally have lower valuations, higher risk. Um, you know, there is a question about, you know, rule of law and other, um, let's call them 
um, intangible risks that uh, that we can get into if you want. But leaving all that aside, um, you know, that to me is the most forceful argument for having a globally diversified portfolio. The problem, as I said before, is that it just hasn't worked out for investors over the last 15 years. But the result of that is that you've just had a lot of valuation expansion in the U.S. and valuation contraction in the overseas markets. And in general, I think there is an inverse relationship, all other things constant, between valuation and expected return. And therefore, to the extent that you are, you as an investor have a lot of home bias and are not inclined to invest globally or not invest globally in any, with any particular size, to me, this is as good a time to do it as you'll ever have. And I will say, in particular... If you look at the, to the extent that you like um, styles of investing, if you look at the value names, val- the value bucket in general in the developed world outside the U.S., to me, they are screaming cheap. Um, you know, when I look at the growth um, over the PE, the growth over the value uh, indexes in developed markets outside the U.S., you know, you're at two and a half standard deviations, maybe even three, depending on which index you're looking at. And that's a historic opportunity. I mean, you're not going to see those kinds of numbers very often. I, I not surprisingly agree with everything there. Now, I, 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 if I use a different word than intangible risk in emerging markets, it would be geopolitical risk and Washington risk, where you spend some time in. And I, I'm curious, I mean, I think the, the existential EM question right now is what happens with China and what is the dynamic with China-Taiwan, with China-US? the US? The only thing that seems to unite US politicians is is trying to get tougher on China. What's your sense on the risks that come from that over time? So I think you're right, Jeremy. I mean, geo, geopolitics is definitely a risk, but I would say that there's a related risk, which is um, so that I think of geopolitics as what happens between countries. And I, and but I think there's another set of risks in terms of what happens inside the country. So with China, for example, I mean, you're not only taking the risk uh, of relations between China and the developed world, China's relationship to Taiwan, et cetera, but you're also you're also inherently investing in a place that could realistically seize assets, um, you know, because it is, you know, it's it, it's it's effectively a dictatorship, and so you know, there's no, I mean, if the Chinese government wanted to go in there and seize private assets, they could, and there's really no recourse for foreign investors. I mean, there's no one that you can complain to. Um, so there is some rule of law risk there, and in general, I think if you look at emerging markets, you're going to see more rule of law risk. Uh, than you would see in the developed world. Um, putting a pin in that for a minute, the um, I think the the difficulty with the geopolitics is that, and we all learned a lesson in this uh, with the uh, with the Russia Ukraine war, is that if if you have uh, geopolitical tension, if you have you know heaven forbid a war break out, um, you know you as a foreign investor, you're probably looking at zero. Uh, because, you know, if you had Russian assets, uh, it's probably not likely that you're ever going to get that money out of there. Um, and so you, I think in, t- in terms of your thinking, one's thinking about portfolio management and investing, I think you have to take that into account. And I think you have to be very serious about that in the emerging markets, which is why in general, um, you know, all things uh, equal, I would say emerging markets get a lower allocation than the developed world in a portfolio because you could be, there are situations that you could articulate today where you're looking at zeros in the emerging world. Um, so I would say start with a baseline that's lower and then work up from there depending on where you think the expected return is relative to the developed world. But, you know, beyond that, Jeremy, it's so hard to say because, you know, who can predict these things? But I think we can say with confidence that to the extent that you can articulate events that would be bad for investors in places like China, that has to be factored into the portfolio construction for sure. Yeah, I'm unfortunately thinking more and more about this issue, and the and, and and I think you're exactly right that that risk of zero that came with Russia, like that was a stark reminder for us that you haven't had in a long time, and and people didn't think that Russia was going to invade, or maybe some people did, and but if no, I I don't know if you could have predicted that that we would penalize U.S. investors uh, at zero, and really in some ways helping Russia uh, more so than helping. U.S. people. I mean, it was sort of an interesting, I think, move to zero people out on that. And so I think that, and, and Russia was a small country, but in weights in, in the end, but China is a third and more. So it is a considerable consideration for EM allocations. For sure. And there's a, there's a related point there, I think, which is one of incentives. 
I mean, I have to think, although I can, I can, I can probably never know this for sure, but I have to think that if you're inside Russia and you have money and you can buy these assets for close to zero, you've made out like a bandit. Um, right. And so it seems to me that inside these countries, there's an incentive to create situations where you push the foreign money out and you're able to pick up assets for, on, you know, 10 cents on the dollar of what they paid for it. And, and to the extent that you're a believer in incentives, and I am, that does not make me very comfortable either. So, you know, all of that, I think, has to be factored into your thinking in terms of risk. Uh, as as we as we're getting to the the bottom half of our show here, a uh, final few minutes, uh, we talked about a, a broad cross section of the world. Any big topics you're researching as you think about the markets and and going forward? What are what are the big topics you're you're going to be exploring at Bloomberg and and at Unison? Well, you know, one of the things that I'm I'm uh, I'm doing a lot of research about now, and I will be writing about next is private credit. Um, as I'm sure you know, Jeremy, there's so much interest in private credit, and I think. It's such an interesting place because, you know, and not to bore your listeners with, with uh, too much history, uh, but, you know, just I think it's worth just mentioning that in the pre-financial crisis world, a lot of the money that went uh, privately to companies was, was provided by banks. And then in the post-financial crisis world where, where, the, where uh, the, the banks were handcuffed to some extent, private money came in to fill the void, and now you've got a whole industry um, where people are going in to get to make private uh, credit investments. And um, it's so much more attractive to a lot of people than the public markets because a lot of these investments don't mark. And so, you know, going back to your conversation about high yield, you, you'll probably get a higher than 9% yield in a lot of these private credit transactions. Maybe you get 10, 11, 12% and you get no volatility or you get very little volatility, let's just say. And so from a money manager's perspective, that's, you know, that's the top of the mountain. I mean, it's almost irresistible. The flip side to me is that anytime you have a lot of money rushing into a space, you get, I think, unintended consequences and unintended risk. Um, and so that's sort of what I'm exploring, not only the systemic risk that could, that could come from having so much debt out there that's not officially on the books and no one, no, no one is really keeping an eye on from regulatory perspective, but also just the risk that higher rates could cause defaults and investors get handed losses that they may not be seeing in the historical data, you know, because we've, we've had interest rates steadily go down for three or four decades. Um, so that's sort of what I'm looking at. That's a, a very interesting topic. And, you know, you could say, is, is, is there really no volatility or just the perception? And it's sort of like your house price. You think there's no real volatility in house price because they don't market every day. And, uh, you know, then then you, 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 you do have to get face the market someday. And so it's an interesting, interesting stuff that you're working on. Final place where people can find you if they want to keep track of all your work. Where should they, where should they look for you? Well, they can go to uh, Bloomberg.com. I write under the, the banner of opinion, which is our editorial pages. And uh, they can also I, you know, tweet out my pieces. They can follow me at Nier Kaysar, N-I-R-K-A-I-S-S-A-R. Well, Nier, it's been a lot of fun. Thank you so much for joining us here on Behind the Markets. Thanks to Dion Simpkins on the soundboard. Uh, and you can find me on Behind the Markets every week on our podcast as well. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit WisdomTree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. 